Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Annie Duke. She was a previous guest on our Decision Mastermind episode earlier this year. She's a professional poker player, an expert on decision-making, and the author of Thinking in Bets, a New York Times bestselling book about decision-making and her life as a professional poker player that was published in 2018. She has a new book out, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Our topic today is how to improve our decision-making. She's one of the best at helping us think clearly and developing good habits and a sound process around making decisions, especially in finance. Annie is so knowledgeable and has a ton of stories and examples. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Annie as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Annie Duke. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Annie Duke, welcome to The Good Life. Happy to be here. How are you today? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to talk about your new book, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making better choices. And you describe this book as offering a framework for making quality decisions and a set of tools to execute on that framework. It's full of exercises, thought experiments, templates, checklists. It's really a fabulous book. It's packed full of information, also anecdotes, a lot of learning. But you mentioned right at the beginning, there's a quote that really struck me and I thought we'd start there. You're making a case for why we should spend time developing our own quality decision process. And you say, because there are only two things that determine how your life turns out, luck and the quality of your decisions. You have control over only one of those two things. So can you talk a little bit about that and how we should approach decision-making? Just to be clear, the thing you do have control over is the quality of your decision. But the funny thing is that I'm not sure that that's necessarily so clear for most people, because you can think about that aphorism you make your own luck. So if you think about that, and that's something I hear people say all the time, that would imply that you have some sort of control over luck. So let's just like define what luck is just to start so that we can kind of dig into that. So luck, by definition, are things that are out of your control. So you can kind of think about it this way. Like if you make any decision, there's different ways that that could turn out. And which outcome you actually observe on a particular time is determined by luck. So a simple way to think about it is if I flip a coin, once I flip the coin, I know it can land heads or tails and luck is going to determine whether I happen to observe heads or tails. I have no control over that whatsoever. I think that what people are actually saying when they say you make your own luck is you make your own decisions, which is kind of my point in this quote. And by that, what I mean is that I can choose a decision that maybe was going to work out for me 50% of the time, or I could choose a decision that's going to work out in some way that I really like 80% of the time, or I could choose an option that's only going to work out for me 20% of the time. So in that way, I'm kind of, I'm toggling what the chances are that I get a bad outcome or a good outcome. Now, but I want to be clear 
even if I choose an option that say it's going to work out 90% of the time and not work out 10% of the time, whether on that particular time I observe an outcome I don't like, because that will happen 10% of the time by definition, is still a matter of luck. It's just that I'm reducing the chances that I see that thing happen. And that's why I think, you know, there's luck in the quality of your decisions. This is why we should be so focused on the quality of our decisions, because luck is something that needs to be seen clearly, but that's it. The rest is all up to you. What you're saying there, if I understand you correctly, is that we do have some control over luck in the process of making the decision and we're choosing how much luck we want to accept or how much risk we want to accept, maybe in the outcomes. I would say, I just want to separate luck and risk. People kind of put those together. Different decisions have different risks associated with them, but they all have the same luck in the sense that luck's influence is luck's influence. It's just going to intervene. But how much you're exposed to the downside is what your decision is determining. So there's a difference between risk and luck. And I think that we tend to confuse those. And so when people say you make your own luck, what they're kind of saying is if you make particular types of decision, you can reduce the risk of a bad outcome. There's another thing you mentioned at the beginning of the book, which is if decision-making has such an outsized impact on the quality of our life, you would think we would spend more time studying decision-making in school. I did not get a lot of training in decision-making all the way through high school, through my undergrad. In my graduate studies, I took one class. It was on decision science, and it was much more about you know if I was a wildcat oil driller in Texas and I had a 40% chance of getting an outcome and a 30% chance of another outcome, just doing expected outcomes. And it's very challenging to take that kind of decision framework and apply it to our world, which I think you did a pretty good job in this book. So you sort of bridged that gap for me. But the bigger point here is that we really don't spend much time thinking about decision-making. Actually, that whole topic is the reason why I co-founded the Alliance for Decision Education, because we really aren't teaching kids how to make decisions, not in K-12 through education. I think it's a, you know, kind of nutty that it's like a requirement to do trigonometry where the need to understand sine or cosine or tangent is very specific to very particular professions that you might end up doing like engineering, right? If someone's going to engineer a bridge for me, I would very much like them to know trigonometry. This is true. But for most things that people are doing, it's not really a required skill. And in fact, Funnily enough, the reason why it's in the curriculum was because it's so hard and it doesn't feel like it has an application that it was sort of like a grit test. That's kind of how it got in there. Like, oh, if you can get through this, you'll really make it in life. I don't think that's a particularly good use of our educational time. And maybe we should be teaching things like statistics and probability instead that really form a basis of really good decision making or even habit formation or whatever. So the reason why I think about that, and actually when I talk to people and I say, what's your decision process? It's kind of all over the map and most people can't articulate it. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I go with my gut or, you know, I decide by consensus, we convene committees, you know, and none of these are particularly good descriptions of an actual decision process. I kind of think about it like walking. I started walking, I don't know, I'd have to go ask my dad, but somewhere around like nine months or a year or something like that. And, you know, I put one foot in front of the other and I go, can I explain the process of walking in terms of like the physics of it? Or can I really even access like what I'm thinking when I do it? No, but I feel like I'm an expert walker. So I don't really examine it very much. And the thing is, even little tiny babies are making decisions. So it's something that we're kind of doing all the time. And I think that this is kind of, you know, if you go back to 
a Kahneman system one, system two, you know, cats are making decisions in the same way that cats are walking. It's just not something that's accessible to them in terms of being able to access that process. And of course, human beings have the ability to think abstractly, to think beyond nine seconds from now, to imagine beyond their lifetime, to think about what their goals are, to think about what their values are in this very deliberative way where you're recruiting system two. But because I think system one has been sort of like running with decisions the whole time, we have the illusion that we're very good at it. And in some ways we are, you know, human species survived pretty well. But in the information environment that we live in now, like in the modern world, a lot of the things that made it so that we survived really well back in the day aren't necessarily good for us now. And we need to be thinking about what's a good process in the same way that, you know, for primitive man, just eating as much sugar and fat as you could was an incredibly good strategy, terrible strategy today, but we still do it. You know, I think that we really need to get a hold of what a good decision is and what a good decision process is because again, going back to, you know, it's your decisions or your luck. Luck certainly has a humongous influence on how your life turns out. No doubt when you were born, where you were born, who you were born to, you know, are you tall? Are you short? Like all of this stuff you don't have any control over. So you have to grab hold of this piece that you do have some control over, which is just your decisions. And we think so little about it and we don't teach anybody about it. And it's the thing that's really going to make a difference. Yeah. And one way we can make a difference is to get better at decision-making over time. And this is something that you write about. And to do that, we have to be able to look at our past decisions and learn from them. And we're not very good at that. Uh, you provide a kind of a thought experiment, which applies in the financial world. Since we're on the Investors Podcast Network, I thought I'd bring it up. You know, you buy a stock, it quadruples. Hey, great decision. You buy a stock, it goes to zero. It goes down by 75%. Terrible decision. That's about the amount of time we spend reflecting on it. We try to move on and learn from it. And what you say in the book is that it's a very dangerous way to try to learn from our decision-making if we just only go that deep. I would actually say it's worse than that. So in that particular case, you know, obviously you're resulting there, right? All I know is that the stock went up or down. I know nothing of your decision process. And so it's very hard to say if it's a good decision or a bad decision because perfectly good decisions don't work out all the time and perfectly terrible decisions do. Obviously, as an example right now, if you bought Zoom as a stock, it may be that it was like a really good decision for you to buy it because over time it was actually going to appreciate better than whatever indexing in the market would be. But if you're taking credit for what it's doing now, unless you specifically had in your decision process, I think there's going to be a pandemic and everyone's going to need to be at home using Zoom. Probably that's more a matter of luck and you shouldn't be taking so much credit for the fact that you made so much money on Zoom, like as an example. But what I think is really interesting is that resulting is even worse than that, because in the case that you gave, which is an example from my book, I don't give you any details. So in that case, maybe you can argue, well, you're asking me to answer the question and you didn't give me any details. So what else did I have to go on? And you weren't implying that I don't know was like a response, right? So I can show you how strong this illusion is by filling in some of the details, which like you buy an electric car. It's like the best car you ever owned. Other people like the car and the founder of the company is a billionaire tech visionary. The stock quadruples in price, but I can do the same thing, right? You buy an electric car, you love it. Everybody you know loves theirs. The founder is a billionaire tech genius. You buy the stock and within a year it's zero and everybody calls it a terrible decision. Now there, I did give you some details about your process. And I would argue if that was your whole process for investing in the stock, it was a horrible decision, 
because I'm pretty sure you want to look at like what are earnings, what's their debt, a whole bunch of things you'd like to know about that stock. And you better have a good reason for why you think you know something that the market doesn't know, right? So if that was your process, it's bad either way. But notice that when the stock quadruples, even though I've given you the details of how you came to the decision, you still think, well, what a genius decision. Well, we go to the facts that we, you know, that came up. I knew since I bought the car and I enjoyed it and it was such a great car and I saw my neighbors buying it, that it had to be a good decision. It was going to work out the way I thought it was because I, I had that inside information. And meanwhile, of course, that's not a very good reason to invest in a stock. Even if you think the stock is great, if the market knows the stock is great, you're not getting a good price on the stock anyway. But this is what happens you know, with resulting is that it just, it's this, such a strong cognitive illusion that even when I do tell you about the process, you override it. So let's talk about overcoming resulting. How might we think about it in another way? How would we build a quality decision process that would get us out of that trap? There's a couple of ways that we can sort of think about how to deal with this resulting problem. A few ways. One of them relates back to hindsight bias as well, which can help us out of the resulting problem. And then this actually, when we sort of think about how to solve for this, this actually helps us to figure out how we would build a good decision process in the first place. Because obviously, look, all things being equal, we would have liked to have done the work beforehand so that we don't have to reconstruct everything after we find out whether the stock went up or down, right? But let's assume we didn't do the work beforehand. So there's a few things that you can do. The first thing is you can actually build yourself a matrix, which is on one side is decision quality, good or bad. And on the other is outcome quality, good or bad. And we can think about that as, you know, obviously there's four quadrants and one quadrant is earned reward. That would be good, good. One quadrant is bad luck. That would be good decision, bad outcome. One quadrant is dumb luck, which would be a bad decision that gets a good outcome. One of them is like just desserts. It'd be a bad decision that gets a bad outcome. What we need to realize is that the possibility that any particular outcome fits in one of those categories is relatively even. Now, all things being equal, I will say the more skill in what you're doing, the more likely it's going to be in either earned rewards or just desserts, obviously. Like if you think about something that was 100% skill, that would mean that dumb luck and bad luck would be out of the question. But we know like with investing, there's a lot of luck involved. With most of the things that we do, there's a lot of luck involved. And so we want to really try to think about where can we place this in those quadrants. And there's two ways to sort of figure out where it might go. The first is to actually think about the outcome in the context of the other things that could have occurred. And I think that this is part of the big problem with resulting is that we lose sight of that other stuff that might have happened. So once the stock quadruples, we forget that there was some probability that it went to zero, some probability that that you lose 25% or 50% or gain 25% or 50% instead of quadrupling. It's actually really good to go through and try to reconstruct what those other possible outcomes might have been and figure out what the probability of those things occurring is. So if you go back to, for example, the way that I open thinking in bets with the Pete Carroll, you know, he calls the pass play, it gets intercepted. That's actually what I, I'm doing in that book where I'm walking people through, well, what were the possible outcomes? Well, I'm glad you brought up that example. It does bring up painful memories. I'm a Seahawk fan. And of course, you're referring to the infamous play at the end of Super Bowl 49 when the Seahawks were playing the Patriots and the coach of the Seahawks, Pete Carroll, 
made a call to run a pass play on second and goal from the one yard line with 26, 26 seconds left. And that's how you open up, as you mentioned, your, your previous book, Thinking in Bets. The consensus, of course, is that it was the worst call ever. And yet, if you do the analysis on the decision, you can come to a very different perspective on the quality of that decision. So maybe you could break that down for us a little bit. I simplify it a little bit to make it interception, touchdown, or incomplete pass. I mean, you know, obviously there's fumbles and other things, but I I just take it into three. So those are kind of the three reasonable outcomes to consider. And then you think about what are the probabilities of those things occurring, which I can just go look at base rates for. And it turns out that among those three possible outcomes, the interception is somewhere between one and 2%. So this helps me to overcome resulting because I'm situating it in its appropriate context, which is the context of the other states of the world that might've actually unfolded that I might've observed. So that's kind of the first way that you can do it. And this helps us figure out which quadrant are we supposed to be sitting in here. The other thing that you can do that I think is actually really important is to try to reconstruct your state of knowledge at the time of the decision. And this is something that happens all the time is that I think that once we know the outcome, we feel like we should have known it, like it was somehow knowable beforehand. And very often what happens is that we get an outcome and there's some new information that reveals itself that then we sort of, our memories are weird and we kind of feel like that was knowable beforehand. And then all of a sudden we're saying, oh, it must've been a bad decision because look, this information clearly tells you it was going to be a bad outcome and ooh, how could you have missed it? And this can create this real problem as well, all which wraps into this concept that I call the paradox of experience, which is just Experience is really good for learning, but man, it, you know, take the wrong lessons from that Pete Carroll example or the stock example or whatever, and it can interfere. But if we can kind of reconstruct what did we know beforehand, what revealed itself after the fact, and then look at what revealed itself after the fact and say, what was knowable beforehand? Was any of this knowable beforehand? Most times the answer is going to be no. And then occasionally the answer is going to be yes. And you can ask a further question, which is, could I have afforded it? Because Sometimes, yes, it was noble, but it would have taken me six months to know and the opportunity would have gone away. Sometimes it would have cost too much money. I could have bought the information, but it wouldn't have made sense then to make the investment. You know, but most of the time it's gonna be like, no, it wasn't noble. There's just a lot there that I want to sort of unpack. And, and I love this concept that you describe in the book called the decision multiverse, which I think it's how you describe this tool of thinking about the different outcomes. And we can do that in past decisions if we want to try to figure out where we actually resulting or not. But even more importantly, as we move forward and we think about a decision, it can be very helpful to articulate out the reasonable outcomes we can expect and then start to try to figure out what the probabilities are, what the likelihood is. And you offer some great tools for that too. So talk a little bit about the decision multiverse and how we can use it. So I introduced the decision multiverse in the book as, again, a kind of a tool for dealing with what an outcome means in retrospect. So it's kind of what I talked about, like in the Pete Carroll example, where you can say, what were the reasonable outcomes that could have occurred? We'll consider a touchdown, an incomplete pass, and an interception, and then try to figure out what the probability of those things occurring is. So you're kind of working backwards in order to put the branches back on the tree, right? Because when you're thinking forward, you know that all three of those things are possibilities. But then once you observe the interception, it's like we take a cognitive chainsaw and we lop off all the other branches and they just totally disappear from view. And now all of a sudden, 
the outcome that you observe, even if it was highly unlikely, takes up your whole cognitive landscape because you only have one path. You only have the, the outcome that actually happened. And so then we sort of view it as inevitable. And if we view it as inevitable, that's how we get into this resulting problem. Because obviously, if the outcome was inevitable and bad, then the decision obviously must be bad to have produced this inevitably bad outcome. That's why we want to think about it as a decision multiverse and what are the counterfactuals. You can also do that, obviously, in your own life as well. And when we do that, we just kind of get a better view. Now, reconstructing it is always harder than doing it in the first place. If you have some sort of evidence, if you have some sort of record of what you thought at the time that you were making the decision, you're always going to be better off because then you can Google your own decision-making. So if you're going to have a good process, a good process should naturally create an evidentiary record. Now, I want to just sort of have a quibble. I'm not a big fan of sort of thinking about a decision journal just because I think cognitively it feels like an extra step. It's like, oh, I'm going to make this decision and then I'm going to go back. I'm going to have to write it down and record it. A really good process is going to produce that record without you doing anything else because you have to do it in order to have a good decision process. So now this gives us a clue to sort of like, what's the first step of a great decision process? And the first step is that for an option that you're considering, I want to pass the ball. What are the reasonable set of outcomes that I should expect to see? And do that at the time of the decision instead of after the fact. And obviously, in order to do that at the time of the decision, you have to actually start thinking about what might the future hold. And I think the reason why that's so incredibly important is that the way that people tend to think about decisions is they tend to think about an option and then they're trying to predict the exact thing that will happen. So that's really powerful. Maybe you could break that down for us using the Pete Carroll decision in the Super Bowl to call a pass play on the one yard line on second down with 26 seconds trailing New England by four points. So generally you're working back. I would like to throw a touchdown. So let me think about this choice because I want to think about the choice that will get me a touchdown. You're not really thinking about it as what are the other ways it could turn out. You're actually just thinking about it as trying to get to a single result. That's not how the world works. It's not for most things. For most things that you decide about, you have an option and there are a lot of different ways. So even just starting to acknowledge in that process that I can't control, like I can't get myself to a deterministic outcome. I can sort of figure out what the set of outcomes is. And if I can do that, I'm going to be a better decision maker because I'm going to have a better view of what the future might hold. What we're trying to do is sort of get us sort of as close to having a crystal ball as possible. Because honestly, like all a decision is, is a prediction of the future. That's all it is. If I decide between the chicken and the fish in a restaurant, I'm predicting that the future me that eats the chicken is going to be happier than the future me that eats the fish. That's it. It's just a prediction of the future. So the better sort of that view into the future that we can get, if we can construct something that's going to allow us to get a view into the future, the better off we're going to be. And the first step is to not think that only one thing can result because that's a completely unobjective and inaccurate view of the future. One of the things that really struck me about this framework and sort of a, a light bulb went off, which is you advise people to think about the reasonable outcomes. And I think something that derails people, and it's derailed me before, is we sort of get stuck there 
by saying, how can I predict? There's so many things that could happen in a football game. I mean, it could be a play to the left. It could be a play to the right. But what you do in that framework is say, well, really, there's three big potential outcomes. Focus on those and make some reasonable guesses about what we think the probabilities are there. Now, in football, you can go back and look at a base rate. But in a lot of things in life, we sort of have to then put some kind of probability on that. And we tend to not want to do that because it's a guess and we don't want to be wrong. We think, I want to pick the right one. And what you say in the book is that everything's a guess. There's only educated guesses and we're never going to be exactly right. We can just put something out there and we'll be better off if we identify the reasonable outcomes and then assign some probabilities to them. And I love the way that you tapped into Malbuson's work on using natural language to identify percentages to help us do that. So I think what happens is that when you're thinking about like, well, what's the reasonable set of outcomes that you can consider? And, you know, obviously sometimes it can kind of be broad scenarios. And I talk about that in the book, but just for simplicity of the conversation, there are certain things that you value in the decision and you've identified what those are. So, you know, let's say like you're, you're thinking about hiring a particular candidate for a position and had a really bad turnover problem at your company. And so all things being equal, if the candidate has met a certain bar in terms of qualifications, now what you really care about is retention. I'm just trying to simplify. So let's say that you care, like, is the person going to be with us between zero and six months, you know, six months to 18 months or beyond 18 months. So you just sort of define those bins. And then obviously the question is for any candidate you're considering, what's the probability that they'll be here for one of those periods of time? So What I hear from people when I ask them to do that a lot is, well, I don't know. In the sense, what they're saying is, well, I'd just be guessing because I'm not a time traveler and I don't have perfect information. And so I can't give you an exact number. And if I can't give you an exact number, I feel like the answer is going to be wrong. And what I try to point out to people is, well, you're doing it anyway. This is the thing that people need to understand is that these kind of probabilistic forecasts are implicit in your decision making anyway, because if you choose candidate A over candidate B and what you care about, what your values are are retention, you're saying and really implied by that choice is that you think that candidate A is going to have better retention than candidate B. So, and obviously that's probabilistic. So the more we can make that stuff explicit that you're doing implicitly in your decision process, the better off you're going to be because you can now examine it, right? We can Google our decision making, go back, And not worry so much about were we wrong, but think more about how do we calibrate better? Like, how do we create better feedback to be able to calibrate? And let me say that when you say you're guessing, you're not really guessing because there's almost nothing that you know literally zero about. So like, I'll give you an example, Sean. So obviously we're on Zoom. So you can't see the surface that my computer is sitting on. You have no way to see it. So it's sitting on a piece of furniture. That's what I'll tell you. That's the only thing I'm telling you is it's sitting on a piece of furniture. What do you think the weight of the piece of furniture is? I'm just going to guess 50 pounds. Okay. And what would you say like the lower bound is? Like what's the smallest it could be? 15. Okay. And what's the most it could weigh, do you think? I'll say 300 on the upper side. Okay. 300 pounds. Great. Okay. So here's what I just learned. You know a lot about furniture because you didn't tell me that the thing that it's sitting on weighs a pound and you didn't tell me that the thing that it's sitting on weighs 10,000 pounds. 
So from zero to infinity pounds, which were the possible answers, you actually gave me quite a narrow range from 15 to 300. You gave me a point estimate, which was 50. And so when I think about that range, what that tells me is that you have more certainty around the low end than you do around the high end. You're allowing that there's some sort of outliers in there. So you even told me what the shape of the distribution was, which is pretty good. And you told me something about your certainty. Because if you could see the thing it was sitting on and know what material it was made out of, your range would have been a lot narrower. In other words, if you had more information, you would have been able to narrow that range a lot. But when you tell me it's between 15 and 300, you've narrowed it down a lot, but you've also told me that you also are lacking knowledge in a way that's actually expressed that really well. Isn't that amazing? So basically what you did was you made an educated guess that also told me how much educated was in the guess. So first of all, that's really good for your process because you're not just sort of saying, because I can't come with an upward the right answer, I'm not going to say explicitly what I'm doing implicitly in my decision right? Because now I could say, hey, I need to move this piece of furniture. Can you send some people over to move it? And let's say that's all I told you. And you need to make a decision about how many people to send over. Well, you know, you don't need to send 10, right? So, I mean, these things really matter, right? So it's implicit in the types of decisions that you already make that you're making these types of estimates. So we should make them explicit. And in having you do that, What it does is two things. One is it really helps you, not just in terms of sort of like your view of the future, but it makes you start to think about, well, what do I know that would help me to make this guess better? And what could I find out? So like when you talk about the base rate in terms of football, the reason why I know it was between one and 2% because I was trying to make an estimate of the probability of that branch of the tree. And so I went and looked it up. So it gets you, when you start to make these things explicit, it gets you to start going looking things up, which is always better because the thing that we have problems with in our decision-making is that we lack a lot of knowledge. So the more we can fill in those gaps for ourselves, the better off we are. The second thing that it does really well is that if you and I are working on a decision together and you tell me that you think it's between 15 and 300 pounds, implied in that is a question. Hey, Annie, do you know something that could help me figure out where it sits in this range or if my range is right. And now, without even knowing it, you're now allowing me to reveal some knowledge to you because you're asking me a question. And I can tell you, oh, well, the desk is like six feet long and it's three and a half feet wide and it's made out of some sort of solid wood. So this this helps you. So now you know it doesn't weigh 15 pounds, right? So when you say it's between 15 and 300 pounds, it's a little bit like, help me. And like, that's all really good. And what that means is that you're going to start to refine and hone what you think the future holds. And then because you've actually bothered to make the estimate, you now have something that you can go look back on as you start to get enough results to say something about it, to say, well, how good are my guesses? Like how well calibrated am I that are going to help you? So one of the things that I recommend in the book in terms of just kind of getting started and being like comfortable with these kinds of probabilistic guesses is to just start thinking about natural language terms, which have a pretty broad target area, and just start there and say, you know, I think it's more likely that this person is going to be here over 12 months than they're going to be here less than 12 months. And that's like a good kind of starter kit for getting you there. One of my favorite pages in the book is the table from Andrew and Michael Mobison's research with the natural terms that imply probabilities and what the general consensus is for translating those terms into actual 
probability. So terms like always, certainly, almost certainly, with high probability. And these are terms we use in finance quite often, uh, all the way down to rarely, never. And the exercise that you recommend is to personally go through and identify for ourselves, what's the probability we associate with those terms? So that when a term comes up, when we're thinking about the decision multiverse and we look at an outcome and a term sort of pops up, well, that's highly likely to happen. We can sort of put a probability, when we use the terms highly likely, what does that mean? And it also allows us to maybe have a conversation with someone else. It's important to know that when we have a conversation with someone and ask them what their view of the likelihood of something happening, it also is good to know that their number, their actual percentage of what they associate with highly likely may not be the same as ours. We may think highly likely means 85% chance. Someone else highly likely might be 75 or 60. And there's a pretty big difference there. So I think there was a lot of great usefulness to this tool and this exercise. When I say like a starter using things like highly likely, I think it's a way to get you used to at least sort of thinking about there's different branches and they have different probabilities. And it's a way to do it that, you know, it's got less friction to it because it doesn't feel like you're going to be as wrong. But to your point, here's the issue, right? If I say two plus two is a small number, that's similar to saying something is sort of highly likely. Like it it sort of feels like it has precision, but only so much. I'm technically correct if I say two plus two is a small number. The problem is that I can only get so much better at math if that's the way that I talk. It's better for you to know that if I say two plus two is six, because six is a small number, it's better for you to hear that because you may think that two plus two is four. Now we can have a conversation about it that's going to hopefully help us become better informed. So we want to speak with precision so that we can uncover a little bit better the places where our target isn't quite calibrated well, like we don't quite have the right target. And when we use natural language terms to describe things that do have more precise meanings, we have sort of the illusion of being precise without the actual precision. It's kind of on purpose. So there's two reasons why that's a little bit on purpose that we tend toward that kind of thing. The more sort of two plus two is a small number kind of language. The first is it's harder to be wrong. As you said, like people are just sort of afraid of being wrong. And that's obviously trading the short term for the long term because Yes, if I say two plus two is five, I might be sad because I'm wrong, but then you help me and then I'm right forever on. And that's really actually important to know because it improves my decisions going forward. So you lose the opportunity, you exchange this ability to sort of be quote unquote right more often because it's harder to tell exactly what you mean. But what you're giving up in exchange is the ability to actually really improve your knowledge at a much more rapid rate that's going to improve your decision making going forward. I don't think that's a particularly good trade. The other issue, though, is that people like to agree with each other, right? I mean, like, you know this on teams, that part of what sort of makes people feel like a team player is that you agree, right? Like, oh, Sean and I are on the same page. You know, well, what does on the same page mean? It means that we sort of see the world the same way and we agree. So when you use these terms that have relatively sort of big, big target areas, right? Like the range of what they could mean is quite wide. What that means is that now we're going to feel like we agree a lot more than probably we actually do. So as you said, in the book, I have an exercise that I really recommend that everybody does with people that they're interacting with on a daily basis, where they kind of think that they're communicating precisely. And it's taking these terms that Andrew and Michael Mobison put together, things like real possibility, always, never, certainly, these kinds of words. And 
write down, if you say that, how many times out of 100 do you think that's supposed to happen? If I say it's a real possibility of rain tomorrow, what do I mean by that? How many times out of 100? What percentage of the time is that going to occur? So I can write that down. And then there's a form in the book and you can go ask three other people their responses to it. And you can look and what you're going to find is that you don't agree on anything, not even what always and never means. So always and never have about a 5% spread. So, you know, always between 95 and 100% of the time, never between five and 0% of the time. Certainly, interestingly enough, it was like 90 to 100% of the time. You know, I think if you look up certain, it means always, but it does. Anyway, so you can see that like even these things where we really feel like, I obviously know what that means. It turns out that we may not mean the same thing. But here's where we really get into a problem. You take a term like real possibility. So I've done this with a lot of groups. So if I say to you real possibility and you think it's a real possibility, it doesn't feel like we've agreed, right? Like if I say it's a real possibility, it's going to rain tomorrow and you look, yes, I agree. And then we're like, yay, we're on the same team. But here's the thing. The largest spread that I ever got with a group was 16 to 81%. Yeah. And it wasn't like everyone in the group was at 80%. And then there was some weirdo who was saying it was 16% meant real possibility. It's actually a relatively even spread across that whole range. And that's what you see in Andrew and Michael Mobison's survey is that it ranges from about 20 to 80 with a very slight skew toward the upper end. So how can we even know that we're not on the same page here? Because if it could mean anything from 20 to 80%, why are you even speaking to each other? You're literally not going to help each other in the decision. And you know, Phil Tetlock tells the really wonderful story in Expert Political Judgment. I think he might say it, use it in a super forecasting too. I'm not sure. But I think it was like uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion. And the general said something like, I think there's a fair chance it's going to succeed. It was some term like that. And what the general meant was 25%. And like Kennedy heard like, you know, 75%. So these things have real world consequences. Like we need to be much more precise in our language. So I know that people are afraid of using probabilities. But the nice thing about that exercise in the book is that I get it. Everybody's more comfortable saying like real possibility and certainly and those kinds of things. The nice thing about the exercise is that it gets you to create a list so that you actually have a like decoder ring for yourself. So that when you're thinking real possibility, you can look back at your list and you can substitute in. Well, I actually think that means 56% of the time. Okay, good. Now we know. Yeah. I mean, if you think about investing, you could call up a colleague you really trust and maybe walk through a few facts about an investment and say, hey, I think there's a real possibility this could work out. And they could say, yeah, Sean, it's a real possibility. And I feel like, yeah, this is just more confirmation that I'm making a great decision when in fact, we have two very, very different views of real possibility. Yeah, and, and I think the key thing is that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to find out that you think it's 20% to work out and I think it's 60% to work out. That's incredibly valuable information because again, as I said, the big problem with our decisions, and this is, you know, the real exploration of this book, is that we just have imperfect information. The stuff we know like fits on the head of a pin and the stuff we don't know is like the size of the universe. And we have to start pulling things out of that universe of things that we don't know into the universe of stuff that we do know. And we need to do sort of two things. One is we have to learn new stuff, but the other is that we have to correct the inaccuracies. We have to correct all the two plus two equals six right? We've got to get all of those corrected because those are inputting into our decisions. And obviously, if you input junk into a decision, guess what you're going to get out no matter how good your process is. You're going to get junk out. This is kind of where I go back to. If we say real possibility, I have to confront corrective information less often for sure. 
So maybe that's a good short run play for me. It's a terrible long run play. So I would prefer to find out that I think it's 56% and you think it's 20% because now we get to have a conversation about it, which is super exciting because through that conversation where we've discovered that there's some sort of dispersion between the two of us in our opinion, we both get to learn. Why do you say we both get to learn? Explain that. Why do I say we both get to learn? Because there's you know, kind of three possibilities for what's going on. One is, which is the most likely if we're equally well-informed, that the answer is probably somewhere in between the two of us. That's cool because we both get to moderate our opinions. Yeah, yes. But it could be that like Sean's right and I'm wrong. So in that case, it's like super obvious why I might benefit from that conversation. But what people don't realize is that Sean is going to really benefit from that conversation as well. Why? Because I'm going to ask you to explain to me why it's 20% when I believe something different. And in you having to explain it, you're going to clarify your thoughts. You're going to more likely sort of find out where you don't really explain or you don't really know why you believe it's true. So the example I think I give in the book is like, I believe the earth is round. I'm right. If I'm talking to someone who believes the earth is flat, they're wrong. But that doesn't mean that I would be good at explaining it to them because that's sort of a belief that just sort of lives within me kind of like a meme, you know, sort of Daniel Dennett talks about this, like sort of beliefs that sort of use you as a host. I would say that the earth is round is one of those for me. Why is it more like a meme for me? Because my explanations to a flat earther would be things like, I saw the pictures, terrible explanation, or scientists say so. And it turns out that I actually don't possess that belief very well in the sense that I don't really know why it's true. So if I then have to tell somebody why I believe that the earth is round and not flat, I need to go figure some stuff out. I have, you know, I'm going to have to go and look and see what that laser experiment is where you shoot the thing. And I'm going to learn some stuff that's going to be able to help me. I'm going to learn maybe something about how you tell if a picture's doctored or not. There's a great YouTube video by Carl Sagan where he explains through shadows on obelisks. The Egyptians actually figured that out. I would go look at that and say, I can Carl Sagan this thing now for myself. Where I come out at the end of that process, having watched the Carl Sagan video, is that I now actually know my belief better. So even in the case that you totally have the right belief, you wouldn't moderate your belief at all. You're actually going to know your belief better. It's going to become less meme-like and more possession-like, which is a very good thing for you. Yeah. And the other thing about that is if you're asking someone who's outside of your purview, and you talk about this in the book, the inside view versus the outside view, if you talk to someone who is not as close to the problem, not as emotionally tied up in it, isn't putting their own money at risk, maybe in the investment, for whatever reason, they are outside of the decision process. You're going to get something that's often less subjective, that's going to look at different facts and can give you a different sense of the issues and the probabilities. And you can learn a lot by bringing someone in, bringing the outside view in. And base rates is a way to do that. Yeah. So if we think about the difference between the inside and the outside view, the inside view is the world from our own perspective, informed by our own beliefs and the facts that we happen to know. That's where all the cognitive bias lives. I mean, obviously, like confirmation bias, I'm trying to confirm my beliefs. Yeah. Availability bias. Right. Things that happened recently in my life. So these are all inside view problems. And that's in particular, the big problematic one is where motivated reasoning lives, right? That when I'm sort of processing information, my beliefs have sort of put me down inside a trench, right? That I sort of dug with my beliefs, which is like my models of the world. And when information comes in, we sort of have this intuition that I look at the information like an 
object, right? In an objective way. And then I either like, you know, alter my model or I don't or whatever, but I look at it objectively and then decide what to do about my, you know, should I change my model? That's not happens at all. Like you bring information right down into that trench with you and you go, let me make sure this fits. Either I sort of massage the information and tell a good narrative about it that strengthens my belief, or I tell a really good narrative about why I should reject the information. Those are kind of two things that happen. So that's obviously, you can see how that's really an inside view problem, right? That you're sort of processing through your own mental models and your own beliefs. So the outside view is, we can think about it as two things. One is what's true of the world independent of anybody's belief. And the other is how other people might view the situation that you're in. So base rates fit into that first category, what's true of the world independent of anybody's beliefs, right? No matter what somebody believes, some percentage of 70-year-old men die of a heart attack every year. Doesn't matter what anybody believes, that's what happens. Doesn't matter what anybody believes, there's some percentage of the days in June in the area that you live in that it rains. So that's why base rates are so helpful because you really want to incorporate that into your process as a starting point because that disciplines you to what's true of the world in general before you start to think about your own perspective on it. Creates a much more objective anchor that's going to help you with bias. But the second piece is actually super interesting that other people can view your situation. And in fact, they can view the exact same data that you're looking at. And they can come to very different conclusions. That's why you have value and growth, right? Like they're all looking at the same data, but they just have very different ideas about how you're supposed to model it and what a successful you know, investment strategy is or what your portfolio should look like or the choices that you make, even though everybody's looking at the same information. Probabilities of outcomes. Exactly. So we know that data exists outside of us, but our interpretation doesn't exist outside of us. It takes someone to model the data. It takes someone to collect it. The way that you collect it, the questions that you ask. By the way, the questions that you ask are not for nothing. Like you'll see political polls where they'll be like, do you think the candidate is great or awesome? Right? Like, okay. Yeah. What are we learning from that exactly? Right. But so what we want to do is say, my model of the world is probably not perfect and neither is Sean's model of the world, but it would be really good if our models of the world collided. If I could understand the way that Sean views the situation that I'm looking at, then we could actually look for wherever there's dispersion between the two of us because the areas of agreement are kind of boring. It's like we both agree the earth is round. So what? So what we want to do is find out where is their dispersion in the way that we're viewing the exact same situation. And then we can explore those differences. And that's generally going to get us to a much more accurate model of the world, because what I'm really doing is allowing the inside and the outside view to collide. And the outside view is going to generally discipline the inside view. So I think that one of the examples that I give in the book is like, you go to a wedding. I just want to say, this is a thought experiment only, and I've never actually run this experiment. Okay. So you go to a wedding, the couple has just gotten married and you say, Hey, what percentage of the time do you think you're going to end up divorced in 10 years? Okay. So you get kicked out of the wedding because what they say is 0% of the time, our love is special. So that's the inside view, right? Like, no, we're special. We're different than every other person on earth. And obviously we love each other and it will never stop. So then like you crash the wedding next door in the banquet hall or whatever. And you don't make the same mistake this time, but now you see the newly married couple and you say, hey, how often do you think the couple in the next room is going to get divorced? And you know what they say? Like 50% of the time. Now, why are they able to do that? Because they can see that situation from the outside view because they're not thinking about their own perspective or the things that they would like to be true of their own union. And that's why we want to be able to get to the outside view so that we can get that more sort of disciplined approach. And then maybe more people would have prenups be better. 
I think that's a great thought experiment to keep in mind, especially in finance, because you always want to remind yourself that when you're getting into a research project around a financial decision, you're often the couple, (laughs) you're like the couple getting married, you're in it. If you're not careful, your overconfidence is going to lead you to think, well, this is just going to work out. And that's where the base rates in finance can come in. I mean, if you're predicting that your investment's going to grow at, you know, let's say you're investing in a company and you're predicting that sales and profits are going to grow at 25% a year for the next 10 years. There's very, very, very few companies where that's happened. Right. In closing, I wanted to talk about one more aspect of decision-making, and that's where, when do you stop? When do you close the decision-making process? You mentioned something that I really am going to take to heart. There's a question that you suggest we ask, which is, is there information that I could find out that would change my mind? And I think that's a great question to ask as we get towards the end and we think, okay, this decision has to be made. Look, there's opportunity costs of waiting, right? Like we can think about this, you know, it's just a time accuracy trade-off, right? That the more time you spend gathering information, theoretically, your decision is getting more accurate. Not always, but on average, that those things are going to be correlated. But obviously, every moment that lapses is time. I mean, it's, there's opportunity cost to the time. Options can expire, for example, both in the literal option sense and then in the decision option sense, right? Like in the financial instrument option sense, they can expire. But also we know that like options can expire. Like, you know, one of the things that I think about is like, you know, for people who are thinking about getting married, I think this is a really good way to ground this outside of finance. If you're thinking about getting married and you know that you would like to have children and have them at an age where you feel like you're really going to be able to be active and enjoy them, you can continue to gather more information and not actually exercise any options by continuing to date and build really good models of who are the people that you would like to date. But at some point, the option to have children by a certain age is just going to expire because you're going to be too old. So, you know, I think that when we can think about decisions that way, that we don't want these things expiring, when I sort of try to get into a sweet spot, we can recognize that there really is this time accuracy trade-off. And one of the things that I think causes us to actually handle that trade-off pretty poorly is that we don't think about options as relative to each other. We think about options in the absolute. So again, we have these two sources of uncertainty that make it hard to know how something is going to turn out. One of them is luck again. Obviously, gathering more information doesn't help us with the luck piece because we can't really help ourselves with the luck piece very much. But we also have this, you know, the hidden information, right? That makes it, you know, when we're modeling these things out, they're subjective judgments. So we're only going to have some certainty around any given option. What happens is that let's say that we're looking at an option and that we're about 60% on it. Well, naturally, sort of feel like, oh, I don't want to make a decision because I'm only 60% on it. So I need to go like get a whole bunch of other information because maybe I could get to 90%. But we have to remember that sort of gaining that extra 30% is going to cost you quite a bit of time, time in which you're not using that information gathering to explore other things that you could be doing that might have a positive expectancy. The option may expire, like all of these issues with using that time. What we actually really care about is not so much as it 60 to 90% on the single option. We care about how does that option compare to the other options that we have. By the way, including thinking about not doing anything, which has costs. So we want to think about the status quo, not doing anything, and think about that as a decision and how sure are we that that's a good choice? Because very often when you explore that, you find out it's not such a good one. But we don't actually think about it as a separate option. We sort of want to think about it as if we're making an active choice to take that path that we're already on. 
So now what you'll find is that like that 60% choice that you really have the urge to get to 90% turns out that it's like way better than all your other options. All these other options you think have like a 20% chance of working out, right? And so here you have this one that has a 60% chance of working out. All these other ones have a 20% chance of working out, or maybe just your certainty around it being the best choice. You know, these ones like, oh, I'm sort of 20% that I think that's the best choice. You know, regardless what those, the probability of getting a good result is, it's just that I've given my options, I'm 20% on these ones, but this one I'm 60% on. So notice that once you start to think about it as relative to the other options that you have, including what we would sort of think is a default option, now it becomes pretty clear, okay, so I should choose this one. So that, first of all, is going to help you speed up because you're going to be less likely to want to think about it in the absolute sense of getting from 60 to 90. But the other thing that you can do is sort of once you settle on that, this option seems superior relative to the other options that I have, you can now just say to yourself, is there some information that I could find out absent having a time machine that would actually flip this, which would cause another option to sort of take it away and win? And you'd be surprised. The answer is almost always no. Once you've gotten to that point in the analysis, you've usually sort of gotten the heavy lifting stuff that sort of allows you to get that separation between the options that you're considering. But here's the great thing. If the answer is yes, then there's two things you can do. One is you can say, can I afford it? Sometimes the answer is no, because the option will go away. But the other thing is that you can do if the answer is yes, is go find it. And you make a really good point that you're going to be more likely to be open-minded after you've asked that question when you go out and try to find that information than if you would have been. Because you're actively thinking, what could potentially derail me from making this decision or change my mind. Yeah, it helps you to sort of see these signals that occur in the world because you may say, yeah, well, if I found that information, that would be good, but I don't have time to find it. So now you exercise whatever option it is, you pick the thing that you pick, but now you kind of know if that information happens to appear on the horizon, I should probably really be paying attention to it. And what that allows you to do is just gets you sort of more likely to climb out of your trend when that information comes along. And to actually view that in a more objective way, because you sort of thought about it in advance that this might be a really important signal out in the world. Well, when people exercise their option to find out more about you, Annie, how can they do that? Well, the best place to go would be AnnieDuke.com. You can contact me, which I really wish people would do. I will say that the things that I write about, a lot of them come out of conversations that I have with people who've read my other work. I would say that that's really, really true of this particular book really came out of like cool conversations I was having with people who'd read Thinking in Bets. And then you can also find me at Annie Duke on Twitter. And then the other thing I would love is if, because we talked about in the beginning, if people could go check out the Alliance for Decision Education, that would really warm my heart. Yeah. And I'll put links up in our show notes to AnnieDuke.com and the Alliance for Decision Education, which I want to personally learn more about. And I hope we can get that going in my children's school district because I'm fully on board with getting more decision-making in the curriculum. Annie, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for being on The Good Life. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.